This video contains discussion of content that may be distressing. Discretion is advised. Go. G'day Melbourne Storm fans and welcome to this special postseason edition of the Graveyard Shift. I hope you're all still celebrating the Premiership victory from a couple of weeks back. Polman and I thought it was time to get back together and uh, we decided to bring a special treat for you. This is a gentleman who, well, let's say 22 years ago, you might not have heard his name. Then all of a sudden he was in the very first Melbourne Storms team. About 18 months later, he's a Melbourne Storm Premiership hero, scoring a try in that big match. And of course, he's been a name that uh, we've all known pretty well. He was a real character around the club. And uh, all these years on, we're delighted we've tracked down the one and only Mr. Ben Rorty. Poleman, Ben Rorty, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having us, Stubbs and Michael. I uh, appreciate the uh, the recall to the media after so long. So uh, I, I might struggle to recall some of the memories over the years, but we'll have fun um, chatting about it and see what, um, see what we can come up with for the next hour or so. We absolutely will. And uh, it doesn't matter. Sometimes when you don't have the full memory, it makes it even more interesting and enjoyable for us. So feel yeah. free to pour mayo on your stories as much oh, as you mate. like. <laughs> Looking yeah. forward to it. Thank you. I've, I've done a bit of digging on the internet as well. So maybe we'll bring up some things that uh, <laughs> back in, in the back of the mind, but we'll see how we go. go um, so basically, you know, just, just for our listeners and viewers, you know, we just sort of want to go through, I guess, your, your life in rugby league and after rugby league, um, obviously with the, big focus on your years at Melbourne Storm um, and so just starting off like there's actually when I was trying to research you I guess there isn't much about your early life so you want to just tell us a bit about your early life where you grew up uh, you're, you're from Sydney um, I believe um, where you yeah. played your junior rugby league and then and then how, how did you end up at Melbourne Storm because um, obviously no problem you, in the world I, I grew up yeah. in in western Sydney in a place called Liverpool or Moorbank in Liverpool um, pretty um you know, not a really well-off area, but I had beautiful parents. Liverpool's a pretty rough area, a lot of um, a lot of drug use and domestic violence and thieving and stuff like that. So I had beautiful parents and grew up in a great area. Um, and then we used to drive 15, 20 minutes and play at a local junior club called St. Christopher's. Um, and I played 15 seasons there. And I was lucky enough, I was one of those kids, everybody else seemed to get in the school representative teams and the, um, the, the junior representative teams. But... From the age of, um, like, my whole schooling from grade one to grade 12, there was no rugby league in our schools. It was all Aussie rules. So I'd really? play Aussie rules at school yeah. and then just weekend I'd play rugby league to fill in the gaps. Um, so I still hadn't made a representative team until I was 17, um, which this day and age, people are hanging their boots up at 17 if they haven't made under 12s, 13s, 14s, 15s, 16s. And um, I just, uh, you know, stuck with it, had great parents, great role models who are really strong-minded and positive people. And um, so I finally made a representative team under 17s um, for Canterbury Bulldogs. Uh, then I moved into under um, 19s, under 21s, reserve grade. I played two years reserve grade. Um, started to get a little bit of a contract there, about $20,000, $30,000, and thought I was ready for first grade. Chris Anderson was the first grade coach at the time, and he, he said, no, nah, you're not ready for first grade at this club. So in the meantime, I was doing an apprenticeship uh, being, being a fitter and turner, fitter and machinist, working with a state rail, New South Wales. So just kept doing that, kept doing that. And then just at the end of the, you know, when I turned about 21, I think it was, um, um, I was reading a newspaper at work one day, just become a tradesman. And it's, I read a newspaper and it said, Melbourne Storm is starting a rugby league team in Victoria. Chris Anderson's left Canterbury to go there. And I was reading it. And I rang my manager. I said, mate, Melbourne Storm started. Let's give Chris Anderson a ring. He knows me, but he didn't give me a chance up here. So Chris said, yeah, come for a meeting. We met at um, a pub in 
Bankstown somewhere, and we got chatting, and uh, he got a, a the, the Daily Telegraph, and he wrote a contract on the back of a newspaper, yep. on the back page, the sport page, and I signed it, and I just signed up to Melbourne Storm for two years at lunchtime, and I had the lucky opportunity. I went back to my workplace and sat in the, the boss's office with my feet on the table. You know, when you, we all say we're going to win the lotto. Yeah, I'm going to tell yeah. the boss to shove it up his backside and walk. Um, he yeah. walked in. He said, what the effing hell are you doing with your feet on me table? I said, oh, I quit. You <laughs> nice. can't quit. You know, you can't quit. You know, right? I said, mate, I just signed with Melbourne Storm, brother. I'm out of here. He goes, how much notice are you going to give? I said, well, today's Tuesday and Chris Anderson wants me in Melbourne on Friday. <laughs> so I'd signed up on the spot. I had to go home until my mum was moving out of home. She goes, oh, that's nice. When? I said, tomorrow. So yeah. flew down to Melbourne with nothing more than um, probably the same clothes I still wear today, rusty old yeah. pair of jeans and a couple of T-shirts and shoes and had zero and, and the journey began. The journey began. Awesome. Where'd you oh, end yeah. up living? You must did, did someone at the Storm put you up? Did you end up um, bunking in with a teammate or something? Yeah, luckily enough, Storm looked after all the new players and I moved down to Richmond, down in Bendigo Street, Richmond, and um, I moved in with Craig Smith. The, the famous winger, he's probably in the photo in the background. He scored the try. He was a lower grade. Might have been unconscious. But he was um, a lower grade winger with myself in the same team. And he'd um, moved down as well. So we lived together for a little while. So, oh. And then I moved from there into a house with Rusty, Rusty Bowden as well. If you want to have yeah. a laugh, he's a man you need to talk to as well. So He'll be next on our hit list. Don't worry. I remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you laugh at him. He's, he's full of shit, but the funniest man alive. So that's, that's how it all started. Excellent. I just got a quick question about I've I've been doing a lot of uh, research and about the Super League war. Like, so you were at Canterbury when that was all going down, playing uh, reserve grade. Can yes. you tell us a bit about that? Were you sort of involved in any of those meetings or anything like that, or are you? Oh, big, yep. Missed out, brother. I missed out on the ching ching. What happened? Yeah. I was in under twenty ones. I was nineteen at the time, and Canterbury said we're not going to have an under twenty ones next year. We're going to pull out, go and play local. It's called Metropolitan Cup, which is a second division so we're going to pay you to play metropolitan cup we're going to harden you up you're going to toughen yourself up to play against the men because it's yep. fully grown men in the first grade there and then you'll come back and play reserve grade a year later so i was out at moorbank metro cup doing reasonably well down there as a kid 19 or 20 and then yep. uh super league come in and they they went into reserve grade at canterbury in first grade yep. and they had open checkbooks and at that time i was down at moorbank metropolitan cup some of the guys who actually played reserve grade they never went on and played first grade. They made, later made a fair bit of money in those two years, but I, I missed out, mate. I was on five grand that year. Oh, and wow. people who, you know, I was <laughs> above above in the um, the picking list, they'd sent me away to, to harden up and toughen up playing, a, you know, as a kid playing against the men in that grade. Yeah. And uh, they made some $50,000, $60,000 contracts while people like Laurie Daly and Bradley Clyde, the, the best players oh. in the world's ever seen, got seven-year contracts at $700,000 a year, knowing full well they're only going to play three or four years. So yeah. they, they were still getting paid. They got another one or two million after they retired. So I wasn't quick enough to get um, born. If it would have been another two years later, yeah. I might have made a modest one or 200 grand, but uh, I missed out. I missed out. But Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like the draw really, isn't it? Um, yeah, didn't it Jim Dimmick play for Moorbank? Because he had a fallout with Anderson. So wasn't he, he playing probably, for Moorbank? He probably got dropped back there. A couple of yeah. feeder club like they do the yep. feeder clubs these days. And there's a few first graders running around there. And uh, yep. I played for Moorbank Metropolitan Cup, and that was the town that I lived in, Moorbank. So I yep. played that season for them. But other times I was playing against Moorbank, so the crowd hated me. I'd, I'd go back there playing for yep. St. Christopher's or whoever, and they'd yell out from the sidelines, kill him, kill 13. Yep. 
break his <laughs> arms, kill him, break his legs, and I'd like score a try and look over the crowd and stick my finger out to wind him up more and more and yeah. walk off the field like like no not not interested. But they all wanted that. They hated me because I lived yeah. there and didn't play for them other than that Metropolitan Cup year. Wow, the Super League year. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So moving on to season 98. So I guess the first um, question we have is like, yeah. Excuse us for a second. Yeah, sure. I did play 97. Uh, Canterbury was Super League. And I played okay. in the reserve. Yeah, I did play in the reserve grade um, team Super League for yep. Canterbury. And, um, but I, I had a modest contract, not a big Super League one. But I, um, two weeks before the grand final, I was playing lock forward. And I um, passed the ball around the, to Paul Mellor, who scored a try in the corner. I tore my hamstring up in um, Townsville. And then I spent two weeks in the hyperbaric chamber in those days trying to get ready for the Super League Grand Final Reserve grade where Cronulla played Brisbane Broncos yep. in the Super League one. And the day before the game, I tried the hamstring and tore it and missed out in the Grand Final in the Super League. Yeah, so oh, no. That's how I finished, mate. Nothing well, at least, at least you obviously you made up for it in 99. So, um, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, first question, I guess, about 98 is, um, yeah, tell us about, you know, talk about... Um, you know, first arriving in Melbourne, the pre-season, you know, rugby league's not known. I'm sure people would have gone like, oh, rugby, is that the Wallabies? So yeah. t- tell us about, tell us about like sort of the first few months in Melbourne, um, yeah, settling we, into a new city. Yeah, we got down there and everybody got to know each other and Chris pulled everybody together. We all come from around the world, you know, New Zealand, um, yeah. New Guinea, obviously with Marcus and all over Australia come together and he was really big on bringing people together. So we, you know, the first week I was east, that's why he said I had to be down for the Friday because we had to go to horse races on the Saturday, which was Derby Day. And we had to go to Melbourne Cup on the Tuesday and Oaks Day on the Thursday. He wanted to get the party rolling. And we got yep. down there and started straight away and, and bonded like that. And then we were all living together all around these areas and no one knew us at all. And we were running in the heat and we went to Pakapanyal Army Camp up yep. there for our inaugural boot camp. And I've got a photo somewhere and I was just this overweight 21 year old kid with a big pot belly and then I was running with Nick Gow and Robbie Kearns and Danny Williams an established first grader at the time and they were all fit as a fiddle and I remember going what have I got myself into here yeah um, but they've always made you accommodating and they accommodate and helped us out um and then late in 1997 just before the season started we all went out to a pub in in um Turak Road or something what it was and we got in a big punch up down there Oh, really? And, um, <laughs> so the police come to training early in the week and I'm sitting there like, well, there's, there's a couple of us here. Yeah. Policeman walking, he said, listen, you're new to town. People are going to want to punch on all the time. And it's not the best way to bring a new franchise to the, 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 to the city of Melbourne. Yeah. And we've been punching on and in the streets. I won't dob anyone in these days, but I'll, I don't mind dobbing myself in. But we're down there mucking around with a couple of locals. Yeah. Um, we didn't do too well out of it, actually. I've got a couple of stitches and a black eye. So. Really? Wow. That was, you saved that for on field. Yeah, I, no, we got a bit outnumbered. It was probably 10 on about two or three, but we still had a go. But um, So that was our initiation to Melbourne. I was like, wow. And then we were going to the races and, and starting down there. But, like, I was walking down the street and with Rodney Howe and he was playing great football and a big, muscular, massive human. And um, I remember just, like, being in awe of him. But yep. people saw us in the storm shirts and saying, are you the new storm team? And I go, oh, these guys play first grade, but I'm just, I haven't played yep. first grade. And that went on for, you know, a few months um, and learning to, to climb. Like I come from, as I said, the western suburbs of Sydney. So I had one pair of blue jeans and probably some Ugg boots and, and no T-shirts. And Melbourne had a culture of drinking coffee, wearing black. And yeah. um, 
going out and hanging on Chapel Street or Bridge Road and, and I used to hang out in Liverpool at the train station. <laughs> and I'd never seen anything like this in King's Cross in Sydney. So that's the, the, all I've been experienced to. Yeah. So coming down, he was a real eye-opener. Um, and I sat back and learned and listened to, to people like um, Tarawa Nikau, uh, Robbie Kearns, Howie, and those type of guys who've been there. And, and it was phenomenal that we come down and we were accepted down here. We, yeah. yeah. That's embraced awesome. pretty quickly, I'd say. Was yeah, that? and embraced pretty quickly. Melbourne got behind yeah, you yeah. guys right away. Yeah, yeah, we did. We did. We got on the paper and the media was pretty good to us down here. So everyone, not everyone, a few people knew who we were leading into that 98 season. So. Yeah. And I mean, so let's go into round one. So you were selected. You played in our first ever game against Illawarra. So, you know, describe describe the the scene, I guess, when you found out that you were going to play your first ever first grade game. So Yeah, yeah. that was phenomenal. I remember I played a trial match first Canberra. And I think I was playing second row or lock and I started that. And I looked at our team sheet and it had the likes of all those names I went through. But Canberra had Laurie Daly, um, Bradley Clyde, Ricky Stewart. Um, I'm not sure. I think Mal had been retired, but all the superstars, Mullins. And I was like, these guys are the absolute hero. And I said to me, so I'm going to do that autograph after the game because I might never see him again. Yeah. And we played that game and you know, I held my own, played another game versus another team. I can't remember. Adelaide, I think. And then... That week they picked first grade and, you know, probably to my luck, it was just, I was just there and I was a really reasonably good defender. And, you know, the, the other boys, you had the, the big attacking guys and I was a reasonably good defender and they said, just get out there and tackle your ass out. It doesn't matter if you don't touch the ball this game, just tackle, don't miss a tackle. And um, it was, it was a, a magical feeling to be selected like a childhood dream as in anyone had been selected for anything and, when a coach said, just, he didn't tell me, just read it out in the team list. He didn't pull me aside, so you're going to make your first grade debut like this. He, Chris Anderson, yeah. now I'm Chris, he's got a memory about as good as mine. He probably just went, oh, he's already played first grade, who cares? I'm not going to yeah. tell him. He just read the team shoot out. And I was sitting there, just, I was hoping to get on the bench. And then he said, you know, number 11 or number 12, Ben Rorty. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to play first grade this week. And um, the rest is history. We, we went to Wollongong, played um, St. George, Illawarra. And the game went fast like that. It was over. Scotty Hill scored a try and a couple of boys scored a try and it was over. And then we, I still got a beautiful photo in the dressing room. We're all sitting around with our shirts off, drinking a beer. And it's one of the greatest days of my life. So yeah. I just I always said I was lucky. You know, I trained hard and I listened to the coach. I might not have been the world's best player, but I always trained as hard as this whole body could do and I always did exactly what the coach said. And they're the type of people hopefully coaches like coaching. You know, yeah, I was gonna try not to make any mistakes and just do what I'm told. So that was it. I um my my profession actually is swim coaching. So uh, I mean, I coach mainly teenagers, but yeah, you definitely uh, through my years of coaching, you definitely look for the kids with good character, the hard workers, not necessarily the talent, because they they generally go further than the. Yeah, that's probably yeah. what what held up with me. And a funny story, Cameron Smith come up to me in about. Oh, late middle 2000s and he said oh they still talk about you down here Rorts. they still talk about you and I said oh that's nice and he goes they reckon you could go out drinking the whole night of piss and come straight from the nightclub in the morning and you'd win everything at training the next morning yeah. you come first in the run the swim the box and I'm like yeah is that what I'm famous for he goes yeah <laughs> that's good I mean that's that's um no no, it's, it's a good, definitely uh, uh, thing to be remembered for, I reckon. Um, 
All right, moving, you know, I think we went on a four-game winning streak. And, you know, tell us a bit about the first home game at Olympic Park where you had the fans on the street. They had to let them in at halftime onto the running track. So, yeah, were you, yeah. was the playing group surprised? Um, the was... We sat there and I think the game got delayed by five, ten minutes. We didn't know that people were hanging over the fences and coming. We didn't know that. Um, but I'd build up a bit of a rapport with a lot of people that I've been meeting in the pubs and nightclubs and all that scene that I was getting into around that time. So I'm yeah. like, I needed 20 tickets and I didn't have any family there. It was just for friends that I'd met in nightclubs and pubs around the area. And they said, oh, can you get tickets? And my phone's ringing. I said, I've never had anyone ring me ever before. And we used to get two grandstand tickets and four outer tickets for the, for the like the Marcus Buy stand. Yep. And and I was saying to these other players, have you got anyone coming? They're going, no. Nah. I said, can I have your tickets? So that first game, I've handed out 24 tickets um, to all the locals. They, we've read in the paper, this could be a good thing. We want to come along. And and everybody, every man and his dog come. Did you guys come to that first game? Oh, I wasn't at the first one, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, I yeah, came there. not long after. I was uh, yeah. too long to get there myself. I was at um, the second game where you played Penrith on Anzac Day. That was, was that? not. Oh, was yeah, the, right. I was at the second home game when you beat Penrith on Anzac Day. Ah, uh, lovely. Good memory. Good memory. Yeah, yeah. So that's how it happened. We, we didn't know the extraordinary, the extent of the crowd um, yeah. issues after that. And then Chris John's coming after the game, the CEO, and he said, mate, we just opened the gates. He goes, we don't know the full capacity we had tonight because they got in there 21,000, which they allowed, and then they opened the gates, apparently. And we were like, that many people want to come and watch us. Sydney teams aren't getting yeah. 21 or 22,000. And we were like, this is good. And, and, you know, Melbourne Storm's what it is today for those four games that we won. You know, we won our first game. The second, yeah. third was okay. And then that first home game, if that hadn't happened, who knows what would happen? Who knows? Yeah. You could have been an Adelaide Rams, a Perth Reds. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. it seemed like that. It, it could have happened. Yeah, you're but, right. Yeah. Make a very good point there, Ben. And that's actually something that uh, Michael said in the past because uh, he, we did a little segment throughout the year on um, clubs that had, yeah. had come and gone like that. And he actually made the point that all of them had a good start uh, with the crowds. All of them looked promising yeah. at first and they just fizzed because their first couple of seasons couldn't quite match. Exactly it. right. Now, exactly you, guys, right. You, guys say, you guys made sure we were a success. <laughs> the yeah. fans are fickle people. We're all fickle people. Melbourne fans historically are great as well, sticking by their teams and love sports. So that that was probably yeah. an advantage Melbourne had over your Adelaide or your Western Reds and other teams. So that was probably what we had here. And we delivered what we knew we could deliver. But you look around that field, you had Lazarus, Kearns, Howie. We had a lot of internationals, you know what I mean? Yeah. Eventually Kamali and Scotty Hill, Marcus By and Robbie Ross and... We had a good little team there. I want to drill oh, down a bit awesome. into that before you, you press on, Michael. At what point did you start to realise that you're actually playing in what was a really good team? Because nobody really knew what we were going to be. We'd been thrown together from a, a lot of different clubs. You know, a fair few Hunter Mariners players had come down. Uh, yes. Obviously, Lazarus was a legend uh, from Queensland. But uh, we'd had New Zealand internationals. What point did you look around and go, this is actually a really good team and we're going to win a lot of games? Yeah, probably halfway through the season. We would have been sitting about third or fourth in the first year, maybe fifth. And I started thinking, oh, we might get to the semis this first year. And that was a dream. Like, as if you're going to get to the semis in this team that just got thrown together. And and then we were like, as a group, we were, you know, the older guys are still saying positive, keep your head there. And I was just thinking semifinals, get to play in front of big crowds at the footy stadium. Um, nice. Benny Youngster coming in there. And, and um, but we had some, you know, cool, calm, collective blokes. You looked at Lazarus and he's big old grumpy. I love Lazarus, but a big old grumpy Lazarus walking around. Oh, what are we doing today? And then once <laughs> training started, he 
machine and, and, and so was Nick Gow and eventually Kearney come in 99 and but those guys just to switch on so that you know pull your head in you know don't yeah. talk to the media too much just pull your head in and listen and learn and just let it go with the flow and probably halfway through the season I realised you know probably six and four or something like that five and five or seven and three I can't remember but you know, I thought, geez, we might be a little chance of making these semi-finals in eighth position. I think we might have come in sixth or something like I think that. It was even third. I think you finished as high as third in '98. First year. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah. 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 But it was an amazing feeling and, and getting there and far out. So to play in a semi-final in the NRL, wow. Yeah. Just to know what was going to happen the next year, but that first year was like, wow. Yeah. Lot, I had a bonus. You know, I wasn't on a big contract, but I had a bonus to get the semi-finals. So you're a little bit cash cash driven yeah. as well as a youngster. You know, semi-finals and you know, and a bit of extra cash, and it motivates you. You know, money yeah. talks bullshit. Walk, so we, yeah. we were happy to play. And I'll play harder and harder. I'll do what you want to do. Pay me more money, and you know what I mean. And yeah, it's great. Excellent. And so '98 was obviously a good year for you. You, I think, just you're a regular starter, and you won the Rookie of the Year award that year. So yeah. Yeah, tell us a you bit about what? that. The, the trophy sits here. I don't keep much memorabilia, but that bad yep. boy sits in my office here. Oh, nice. Uh, awesome. it's, even, it's even bent on the end there. It was in someone's, yep. the boot of someone's car for about two weeks. Yep. And the end of it got bent, but it's all part of the story. And uh, it sits in my office here. I don't have much memorabilia around the house from, from my yep. time playing rugby, but that sits in my office here. There's nowhere else for it to go. So. Yeah. Yeah, were well, you surprised like, you when... Know, were you surprised when you won it or did you think that you were a good chance? Never even considered it. Never thought about it. Yeah. Didn't know the award existed. Okay. Um, yep. If you if there's, you see any photos, you go around. Um, I'd flown up to Sydney. I might have stayed in Sydney. I'd flown to Sydney and just before the presentation night, I had an altercation in Sydney at Coogee yep. Bay Hotel. No, yeah, Coogee Bay Hotel, just yep. self-defence. But I'd broken my thumb. So my thumb oh. was sitting up swollen and... And yeah. like that, and that, I've, they give me the trophy, and I've got a massively broken thumb with having had yeah. surgery on it yet. I'm holding the trophy and trying to smile and keep it a bit of a secret that yeah. I had a broken thumb. And uh, so I look at the photographs now, and I know it's great that I had the trophy, but also sit there with a smashed thumb, which you know I had a big metal plate and five screws put in it. Um, wow. A little bit later, so <laughs> it's great. Is it like just this is a bit of a side question, but obviously you're pretty anonymous in Melbourne, as a lot of the Storm players are. But you go back to Sydney, you've played a full season in first grade, you're a bit more noticeable. Did you find that when you'd yeah. go back to Sydney that people you know start noticing? Me a lot, and it, it continued a lot. The Bulldog supporters knew me a lot, a lot more. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah, I went back there because, you know, they, I did reasonably well in reserve, growing the best and fairest awards. So the Bulldog supporters like watching their youngsters come through and play. Yeah. Um, so when I'd come back from, from Melbourne and won the premiership or even in 90, end of 98, uh, I'd be going through train stations and, and, and hey, Benny Roddy. And I was like, someone knows my name. Yeah. And it was, it was the, it was the supporters are usually from the Bulldogs and teams like that. Um, and it was just, I was never into the notoriety of the being a big head like that, but um, it, it was, it was nice. Yeah. Certainly had, you know, someone know your name for a trade that you do. And yeah. it was, it was, a, it was a bit of a pleasure, but um, you know, I still I still went back that year. We finished. I remember I finished the year with Storm, and we had our Mad Monday. And the next week, the Bulldogs played. Um, can't remember that, and they lost. So I went to Bulldogs Mad Monday as well. So because <laughs> I still fancy them all, I was yeah. sitting in um, East Hills Pub with all the all the Canterbury players, and yeah. then um, Terry Lamb or someone gave me a, a Bulldog shirt and said Bulldog Minor Premier or whatever it was. 
and uh, Fox Fox Sports come in with the camera. <laughs> with, with all the Canterbury boys with your hands around and drinking like that and then my phone went off the hook all the boys ringing me what are you doing on Mad Monday with Canterbury and I'm like oh, I don't know just come back to Sydney and drink with me mates so yeah yeah that was pretty Fair funny enough. so uh, moving on to 99 so I think Dubs and I both want to really talk more about the finals and obviously the grand final but so 98 you're a regular starter 99 we signed Stephen Kearney we, Rodney Howe comes back from his drug suspension <laughs> Um, you then play more of a role coming off the bench, being an impact player. How did you find that change of sort of, you know, being it started to more of that, uh, you know, coming off the bench? Yeah, my game wasn't typically a explosive ball runner. I ended up scoring a few tries, but I wasn't one to make line breaks and bust through the line. And so for me, I was a, I was the same pace the whole way, but Chris said to us, just come off the bench, play your 15, 20 minutes first half, 15, 20 minutes second half. He goes, don't miss a, a fucking tackle. Don't miss any tackles. And and when that's in your head, that's what you try to do. And certainly I did miss tackles, but you're out there, no tackles and run the ball and just hang on to it. Quick play the balls. Um, and that was the role I was given at that point in time. You know, I come down from, from Sydney as a lock forward. And then, you know, they had Tarawanikau there as lock. So I moved to second row, front row. I got a bit bigger. And, um, and just stayed there the whole time. And I was quite happy there. We used, to, we used to have so much fun on the bench. You look at that, that bench. It was myself, Russell Bowden, Danny Williams, yeah. and Matty Rua. And, and it was one of the first yeah. uh, clubs in the world to have four biggish forwards on the bench. Yeah. And, um, you know, you know, Lazo might need a rest or Howie or Kearns, you know. You know I used to run on and He used to use a swinging arm a little bit, bit of a niggle. Danny Williams had come on the same. Rusty yeah. wasn't like that. But Paul Marquette or, or Matt Rua, they were big hitters. So the other teams, they go, oh, wait for 20 minutes to wear tired. Then you're going to get Rorty Williams and Matty Ruhr on the – and Rusty was a big hitter, not a dirty player. Yeah. Those blokes are going to come on and bash the shit out of us when they come on, and they knew that. Yeah. So there was no there was no weaknesses when our bench come on. We were coming on, and we are coming on to hurt you. And we are coming on to hurt you, and there was no shortcuts. And you ever line anyone up? You ever line up an opposition player and uh, <laughs> target take someone out, like a playmaker or a key player from the opposition? Oh, I remember when I went to Penrith, I tried to line up Rodney Howe one day and I ran out of the line and I smashed straight on my ass. He was a great friend of mine, still is. And uh, I remember that's one of the times that we put him backside. Um, not really. Not really. I, I, you know, I just did my job and, you know, going for a big hit and running out of the line, you're going to let the team down a little bit. So, you know, I wasn't a huge hitter, but I was just, you know, trying to make myself efficient with the tackles. But that was my role. I moved into that that bench role, which sort of stuck with me the rest of my career, um, which was fine. You know, we had fun on that bench. You know, Rusty and I have fun in everything we do. And we'd have a little gamble on who's going to get on first in the game. It'd be $50 yeah. if you get on or I get on first. It'll be like, oh, and, and the coach would come around and go, pick Rusty, pick Rusty. And Rusty would go, and I'd go, told you, and I'd win $50. Or yeah. if I come on first. And we had little bets on there. It was called Bench Lotto. And we used to draw nice. numbers out of a hat. You can yeah. say these 20 years later because it's pretty funny, but we used yeah. to we used to draw numbers out of a hat. If your number came up that you went on, you got paid the money by the other players. So. <laughs> but I enjoyed the role off the bench, you know, and, and it didn't make much difference. And I, sh I should mention too that, like, back then there was unlimited interchange, not like today. So, you know, if correct me if I'm wrong, but it was basically you're on for 10 minutes, you'd flog yourself, and then you're back on the yeah. bench. So you were um, probably playing as many minutes as the starters. A lot of times I did play as many minutes. I yeah. enjoyed the football back in the 90s where you, you had the, the limited interchanges, like four interchanges, you went off, you went on. I enjoyed that. 
I was a long distance. I, I could hold that tempo for a whole period of time. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the world's fittest person, but I liked that war of attrition and could stay yeah. there the whole game. I was quite happy to play the whole game in my younger years at Canterbury. And then they changed the rules, so we had to adapt to it. And then you were just like, people were fighting for the ball a bit more um, yeah. because you're all sort of a bit fresher. Um, and before it would be look around sideways and, you know, your run, your run. But when it got to unlimited, it was like pushing each other out of the road to have your run before the coach said, Rods, come on, have another rest. And you're like, well, then he had two quick runs and three tackles, but you've done your job. Yeah. So that's, that's how we... Um, just before so, Michael presses on towards sure. the 99 finals, I'm just curious because you said uh, when you first got there, you were feeling a bit out of shape. You weren't match conditioned as fit as you'd like to be. You had a bit of an, uh, an unusual role because on the one hand, you've got to be a big forward. You've got to match it with the other massive props and second rowers. And at the same time, you did. I know you say you're not a big runner, but you actually, looking back at the way you played, you did run a lot. And uh, got, yeah, uh, I probably talked myself down a little bit in my role. I did reasonably well there. I did well. I like to get a quick play. The ball made some good line breaks. But what happened? I come to Storm, I was probably 101 kilo, which included uh, puppy fat as a 18, 19, 20-year-old has. I, I had that puppy fat. And then I changed that fat into, into muscle and filled up around the top and stayed at 100 kilos. 99.8 or 100 kilos was my great playing weight. Um, yep. And then I could be a bit more agile. And I used to step a little bit sideways and try and pass the ball a little bit now and again until one went wrong. The coach would say, just hold the fucking ball. Don't pass it. Just hold the ball. So that's that's about it. You know, I, I had to play front row as well, replace Lazo and Howie and Kearns. So I had to make sure I was heavy enough for that. But I wanted to stay light enough to play second row or lock. I suppose I always tried, wanted to go back to lock forward. But then you had yeah. Kearney there and, I mean, Nick out there and had to wait till he went. And, yep. But it was good fun. Yeah. So onto the final series. So, you know, we, we finished third. Um, we then played St. George at home and we got absolutely smashed. Tell us a bit about how that loss affected the playing group. Were you guys shattered? Obviously, you bounced back and we went on to win the premiership. Yeah. But did a lot yeah. of people think, a lot of the players think, like, that's it for us? Like, Yeah. If my memory serves you correct, I think St. George had beaten us once or twice that year as well. Yeah, um, you're right. We have to look back to the records at least once. So they had a bit of a wood over us. We come into the game confident, home game, <laughs> coming into the confident, and then just one thing after the other, after the other went wrong, and we were like, "What's going on here?" Um, and then to the, I think the point came where we were trying our best, and everything was going pear shaped. We try, you know, when you sometimes try too hard. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what happened, and we were missing uncharacteristic tackles and players playing out of their unusual roles, and they got on a roll, and they were just phenomenal. They played the best footy they could ever play. They played their grand final that day. They yeah. played their grand final that day. And we played our like our worst trial match that day. So there was two big, you know, they, they weren't going to ever play any better. Yeah. And we couldn't play any worse. So, you know, fast forward, to, you know, three or four weeks later, we were, we were going to have to play up here, but they couldn't play any better. Yeah. So in our minds, we went back to training and you've got the, the positive people, as I keep alluding to, even little cheeky Kamali and run around, we're right, come on, let's do this. And, and no one ever gave up hope. No one ever gave up hope. That game, it's still perplexed today what happened, you know. Yeah. I don't know, every, everything they did was just like gold and everything we did was, was the opposite. So yeah. we weren't disillusioned to training. We went back and trained just as hard, just as normal. Chris Anderson, the man of a wise man, um, and he, he was just, forget about it. Just forget about it. Let's start the semis again next week. Yep. Start again. You come third, you're a good footy team. And that's what you're going to do. So. Yeah. 
And the next week, we, as you know, we beat Canterbury by two points. Matt Guy scored a runaway try about 10 minutes ago. Uh, you know, tell us about how it, how it felt, you know, beating Canterbury. Was that win yeah. was that a bit more special for you? Yeah, certainly special. Um, I remember, you know, Ricky Struel kicked the ball across the field, as we all know. Yeah. Yeah. And Matty Guy was playing 5-8 that game. And he'd just, he'd come from the wing. And he'd moved into 5-8. I think that was his first game at 5-8 or very small amount of time at 5-8. And and he come in and, and, and grabbed the ball and Maddie's as Maddie's as strong as he's as skinny and as hairy as you'll ever see a human being. He's built like that and he's yeah. as hairy as you ever see a man, but he's as strong as any man. So and fast. So when he got in that clear, there was no one on the field who was going to catch it. Just Maddie's in the clear, and I remember saying, "Is he's he's going to score? He's going to score." And then we finished the game, and then and then to win that versus your old club who didn't snub you, but you know didn't give me opportunity for first grade after getting reserve grade player of the year there, and they never gave me a first grade game the year later. I was like, oh wow, bad luck, you know, stick it up them. And uh, yeah. there was no hard feelings for even even though I was at their Mad Monday the year before, um, <laughs> there was no hard feelings for them. And, and Matty Guy when he scored that try, and that was that was that was the catalyst for us coming back in the grand final. You know, we were down versus Canterbury. I can't remember the score. Might have been eight or four, eight or eight. We were down by eight or ten points in that particular game, and uh, that was a catalyst for obviously the next week and the week after. So that gave us that momentum. So it was a brilliant game. That was a brilliant game of football at the Footy yeah. Stadium as well, and amazing. Yeah. Well, fast forward. Actually, one other thing I want to ask about. You know, this was a twelve-year-old. You know, me as a twelve-year-old thinking. I always thought. Scott Hill, don't get me wrong, love him, fantastic player. But him getting injured was kind of a blessing in disguise because we got Craig Smith back and his kicking was phenomenal back then. Now, or they're all kicking 80% nowadays, but back then, Matt Guy was our kicker. And, you know, love 68%, Matt Guy. 62? Yeah. yeah, something like that. And a lot of those key kicks in the, you know, both all the semis, they were from um, not super difficult, but relatively difficult position. Do, do you yeah. sort of think the same way that yeah that... we couldn't think like that as, as obviously I, I see what you're saying about Scotty and, and Scotty yeah. fantastic player and, and and he's the same as Robbie Kearns two of the unluckiest players who represent New South Wales Australia and didn't play in an NRL grand final these two were you know sorely missed by Matty Guy um, excuse me Scotty he was a very good individual player and we went to him a lot of times you know we'd throw his dummy and then push over so that was the way he could have been. You know, the games would have changed, maybe not pass the ball out and score on the wing. Scotty probably would have scored a try or two for us. And that's yeah. the only way we think. But as you said, it could have been a blessing in disguise. Like Matty Guy had that kick in the grand final in front of the post. And I yeah. still thought he was going to miss the fucking thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was in there like, oh, he still might miss. It's Matty Guy, a goal kicker, and I love him to death. Yeah. But he's... You know, anyone could kick 68%, can't they? Anyone could. I yeah, could yeah. You get anything under the post is a gimme. So. Anything under the post, except if Matty Guy's kick it. And um, so that change was probably lucky for the team dynamics. Um, as you probably know, Ben Anderson played in the first 5-8, Chris's son. Um, yeah. And then when he got he got dropped, there's controversy whether the, the club pushed him out or Chris Anderson made him, like dropped him or Chris Jones, yeah. John Rebo jumped in. I don't know the controversy over it. But um, obviously Matty Guy moved into to 5'8". Poor old Benny's still a great friend of mine to this day and I feel sorry that he didn't get the opportunity to play, you know, the following weeks. But as it goes, history, history's, history's there now that, you know, it was a master master move, putting Matt Guy from the wing into 5'8", scoring the try versus Canterbury and then Smitty coming in on the wing who played most of the season in, in the Queensland competition. So it's a master coaching yeah. move by whoever did it. So. And yeah, you're right. Like having Scott Hill would definitely given us a bit more 
probably a bit more potency in attack. Um, yeah. Yep. So we got over Parramatta. Um, let's move on to the grand final. Um, what was it like? Obviously, it was 109,000 that day. Um, what was it like running out onto the grounds, you know, national anthem playing, all that stuff? How was that experience? Yeah. That running onto the field was great. I, had, I started going to the girlfriend in those days. You read in the media, she was a cheerleader from the storm. Yep. So halfway through the season, um, we've been going out for a few months. Um, and then the club got wind of it. The, 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 um, the cheerleading business who run that business said to the girls, can't fraternise with the players. Um, and we, and that, she got sacked. So there was an article in the Herald Sun in Melbourne. I do remember yeah. that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but can I just interrupt and say she's now your wife, isn't that, is that she's correct? She's my wife and she's yeah. been a successful businesswoman herself. Owned a cheerleading studio for 12 years. Mother of two beautiful kids, and uh, she's out working now while I'm home chatting to you guys and having a beer. So the best <laughs> wife you could imagine. So that that was early in the year. She'd been sacked from the club, and then stuck by us. You know, stuck stuck together as a player, and she yep. travelled up to Sydney for that game. So running onto the field, seeing all the girlfriends and wives sitting on the right hand side was truly amazing. Knowing my dad was across the other side, my mum and grandma always stayed home. They didn't come to the games, and dad was over there with fourteen other people that I got tickets for. And the storm were really good because they'd even made us pay for the tickets that we got our because because we won the grand final. They didn't deduct any money out of our thing. So running onto the field, I'd never seen or heard anything like 107 or 109,000 people. Um, and Hugh Jackman was there, who's, who's a superstar singing. It went really, really quickly. Um, we ran onto the field and, and, and the game just started. And I just, I was in, I was sitting on the bench as usual and just looking around and it was. It was just, I, don't, I can't describe it. Like anywhere in the world with 100,000 people there, it was just, you know, booing you. Half the people hated Melbourne. They were all booing us. But yeah. then the other half hated St. George. So they were cheering for us, <laughs> even though the storm had like probably a, maybe 10% of the crowd, maybe less. Yeah. But they were on our side. So that was a great feeling. Yeah. And, um, yeah, tell us a bit about your try. So you scored just before – I was watching it, actually, before the uh, interview. Um, yeah. You scored around the 58th minute. Uh, yeah. You scored – so you got us to 18-12. When you scored, you didn't really celebrate over. You sort of clapped your hands and it looked like it was more like, all right, boys, let's keep going. So yeah, tell us a bit about the try. Yeah, you hit the um, nail on the head. Going back the week before um, to Parramatta, obviously Canterbury week before we were down by 18-8, 18-4. Parramatta the week later, we were down – 16 2, 16-4, 18-4, something like that. We we're down versus Parramatta. So coming into the grand final, we got to half time and we we're down 14-4 or something like that at half time or whatever. And and the boys are like, this is the same as last week. It's the same as the week before. And Chris Anderson said, just go out there and back your own ability. Those were the words that I remember saying, back your own ability. And Brett Camoli said, let's just have some fun. You know, who's gonna say what type of person would say, have fun? You get yeah. beat by 10 points or in, in a grand final Camoli. So let's just have fun. And Chris Anderson said, back your own ability. So Robbie Ross or Steve Kearney made a little break at the start of the second half, a little flick past the right. And we were, the momentum started. Yeah. And we got on a roll. And um, I, I think Tony Martin had scored as well. And I was lucky enough, Danny Williams, uh, you know, a great friend of mine, we had a fallen out there a few years back, a bit early, we had a bit of a falling out. But we, 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 become, we were great mates at that particular time. We played tennis together and we were always in each other's hand. And he looked at me and said, I'll run you a decoy. I'll run you a block. Normally yeah. you tell someone, you say, you run me a block. And, you know, you. he said, I'll run you a decoy. And who would say that? He ran the decoy and two or three yeah. players went into him. I got the ball. I just sort of, you know, I have a joke with Colin Ward now. He's a he's a St. George player. 
I said, yep. I pushed you off and Colin wasn't even near it. But the, <laughs> you can see there, you know, there was a big gap there that, you know, he could have bit the QE2 three, uh, through the big ship. And um, I ran through um, and I knew there was a job to be done. I'm not, wasn't a big try celebrator. It's not, it's not Aussie rules where they kick a goal and everybody's like hugging and kissing. I was like, I scored the try, throw the ball to the guy, kick the goal, let's keep going. Yep. That's how our mentality was. We had a job to do that second half as a steamroll St. George. So, yeah. There's a couple of key flashpoints in that second half, particularly because obviously they were all over us in the first half. Uh, I mean, you must have felt that that Blacklock runaway try. You must have thought, well, this is this is a shocker. <laughs> Let but, me tell you one thing about the Blacklock try. When you get a chance, watch that in slow motion. Right today, that try would have been disallowed by the bunker because as he kicked the ball, Kamali and Robbie Ross were coming around. Yeah. Yeah. Robbie Ross. I mean, excuse me. Trent Barrett ran back towards Blacklock and impeded. It's it's this is like wow. this is yep. like controversy and I've watched it. I haven't said this. I said it early this year on a website on a forum, and a couple of people agreed with me. So if you get a chance, I know you love the storm. I know you want to do it. Sit down and watch it frame by frame by frame. And Robbie Ross is impeded by Trent Barrett to have a fair shot at Nathan Blacklock, and that's why he ran straight through the gap because we couldn't get to tackle him. So I know out of the history, many games have been decided by probably incorrect calls, but this day and age, that would not have been a try. So they all whinge about Tony Martin's uh, beautiful pass off Matt Guy, which was a perfect pass. They yep. call it the forward pass, as you probably know. Perfectly flat, I reckon. Perfectly but I mean, flat. I always, it's the angle. Like when you're in that sort of, you're watching <laughs> on TV and that sort of top right-hand corner, it always seems forward. But yes, it does. for me, it's the angle of the camera. Yeah, it was. So, so that was it. Um, that was a controversy around that one. The Trent Barrett one was the same, I think, in, in hindsight, watching it years later. I said, it's a shepherd, and I've watched it. Um, but the boys just stuck together that second half. And like you said, the pivotal thing, Nick Al came out, and he was he was fired up. You could see his mullet going. He was trying to punch on with Craig Smith. It was an international. They played together. Um, yeah. And once we saw Nick Al get a bit angry and his big eyes open up like that and his mullet flying around, <laughs> you know, he hadn't given up. He hadn't yeah. given up. And, and you know... The boys just just plug in there, and the defence of some of the guys, Matty Rua, Russell Bowden, come off the bench. Denny Williams knocked that ball out of Wishart's um, arm off the kickoff. Yep. Just yep. little things like that. The pivotal things, like you said, Dubs. I think yeah. it was uh, yeah. Craig Smith crashes into Mundine on the line, causes him knocks him just off balance slightly, drops a gimme try. So yeah, little, little the Sir George like supporters, uh, Sir George supporters, never forgive him about that. One day in a zoo magazine about 15 years ago, I said, "Had that grand final go? I go one thing." Monday just should have passed that ball. But the best thing is the shot of his face afterwards because yeah. uh, he ran his mouth all the time. He loved the talk. And then because yeah. uh, I think um, uh, Ray Warren's calling it and Peter Sterling's just gone, oh, I think he's dropped it. I think he's And just Mundine's face though. Yeah, once that camera came in and it was evident, it was like, but that's rugby league, you know. We dropped earlier balls and balls will yeah. always be dropped. And Even the legend Lazarus had a couple of key moment mistakes there, yeah. which uh, we, we obviously forgive knowing that he's legend that he is, but... When I was talking a moment ago, I wasn't going to say that. I'm going to point that out. Like, Lazarus did his bit. Uh, but, like, we all did at certain times throughout the year. It doesn't matter grand final, any game. Yeah. We all had a couple of drops. And, you know, the man who's won five premierships, three different clubs, probably never dropped the ball two times in his life. And he dropped them two times that game. And, yeah. But we stuck yeah. up for him. We backed him up. And, and uh, yeah, in the end, uh, we, you know, we, we only true fans who, who've gone through the game again actually remember that. Most people just forget and remember. <laughs> <the game. laughs> when you watch the replay. Which is what we're getting forward to. Before we get to that final incredible moment where, uh, we, which decided the game, 
Just a, a word on Brett Kamali because he was he was a magician with his kicking game, with his short kicking game particularly. And it wasn't just the um, the tries that we scored, but probably in that last twenty minutes or so of the game, he absolutely had the ball on a string. Do you, what are your memories of him in that game and, and just watching the way he played? Uh, and, and in general, like when he had the ball, did you just get that sense anything, he could do anything with it? Yeah, he was another one. He was a little man with a big voice. Um, like it sounded like a jockey, really, like Billy Slater. He had a little, little voice, but it stood out. And his job, you know, at training, you push him around and just, he's only a little fella. Get out of the road, you little, you know, that's how he was. And he'd have a laugh with you. But next minute when his eyes, he had those eyes as well and started to get serious. And um, he'd boss Lazarus around, Howie, Kernsey, me, he'd just tell you what to do. And you just listened. And that's why he was a brilliant player. And Chris Anderson had a, a flat style of play. So these day and age now, the players throw three decoys, run it through and pass it back 10, 15 metres. Kamali had you running at the line. He'd pass one or two of you the ball and you might get smashed or he might go through a gap or he'd throw a dummy and go himself. So he was a magician like that. He practiced his kicking before training, during training, after training. So we expected him to be a good kicker. We, 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 if he kicked one that went out, it was, why'd you do that? You, you, I think he might have kicked one out in the fall during that grand final, actually. Yeah, and that was yeah, another, that's yeah, that's uncharacteristic of him. He wouldn't have done that in the whole year. So we expected a lot out of him. He was a small man with a big heart and a, and a, and a you know, great uh, leader on the field. He, you know, he could have been our captain that day. You know, just unfor- unfortunately for him, we had a bloke called Glenn Lazarus there. So. Yeah. <laughs> so last five minutes all coming up to the last five minutes of the game we're on attack we've been on attack clearly St George have gone into a defensive mode they're protecting a four-point lead it wasn't necessarily the last last roll of the dice but I'm going to set the scene then I want you to talk us through exactly what you remember so fifth tackle ball comes out from dummy half to Kamali he shapes to kick he's roughly midfield <laughs> about probably 10-15 metres out goes what is an absolutely beautiful crossfield kick towards the in-goal area. Where were you standing? What are your memories of it? Ah, what a good question. You've just put that to a T. That's very good, good, very good uh, media, mate. Well done, you said it. Yeah. You, you, I could have just agreed with you and give you a clap there, and that was great. Um, Kamali, as I knew, as I said, he doesn't do bad kicks. He does one a year, and it was in the grand final, went out in the fall. I knew he was going to put it on the line or closer. It was an easy kick for him. For me or you or someone, I might have come off the side of the foot. I expect him to do a good, 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 good kick every time. That's what we expect. We expect that. It's not luck. It's practice. Going out to Smitty. Smitty's great under a high ball. I knew that. Smitty, I played with him at Canterbury for two years before, plus half the year at Storm there. I knew he's a good catcher of the ball. So it's not rocket science. It wasn't It wasn't a fluke. It's stuff we practiced. Um, and we also decided to kick the Ainsco side because he wasn't the better catcher of the two. So it was just, it was training run for us. It was nothing flashy. The fact that he kicked it over the top and Smitty caught the ball and, um, you know, and then, and then obviously we move into Ainsco, hit him around the chops. Um, so it's not, once again, a big, big deal. It was, there's no other reason. There was nothing he could have done other, other than give the penalty try. And I remember standing reasonably close to Billy, Billy Harrigan, who I've become mates with since rugby league, a oh, great nice. person. And Billy, Billy's sitting there and we're going penalty try and he's move away. And I remember he had his hand on his money, so it'll be, so it's a penalty try. I heard him say that yeah. out his mouth before it come up on the screen. So I knew we'd won that game or we'd, we had the try and then the, the kick into the post. And when you're playing in the heat of the moment, you're thinking penalty try, eight-point try, and you, you know, the enormity of it doesn't go through your head. Penalty try and eight-point try are slightly different, as, as you probably know. The penalty tries, yeah. if you, you don't ground it, you get given a, a try under the goalpost and you have a kick there. But a, 
an eight-point try. If you score the try, get your four points, and someone knees you in the back or kicks you in the head, you get an extra shot at goal. So you got two two goal kicks. So um, we knew it was a try. Billy Billy went, yeah, so penalty try, like in his ear. And when I heard that, I started grabbing the boys. I don't know how many of them heard that, and I was like, yes, yes, and they go. Wait, wait, we won, we got it, we got it. And um, and then it came over the screen and, and you know, we're worried about Smithy as well. Smithy's sitting there and you see his fingers bend up and he was yeah. he was severely un- un- knocked out and unconscious. So, had a, you know, I've been living with him for a fair while. So, really worried about me, mate, um, which no one really speaks about, do they? They just said Smithy got knocked out and there's a penalty try moved on. He was severely knocked out. He could have had a broken neck. It was a big hit. It was a big hit. Solid hit. That was disgusting. Other people um, blame Ainsco for that. But what was he to do? I would have done the same thing. Try and knock the ball out, knock the head off. Grab the guy in the air, it would have been a penalty. So he he did what he did. I I couldn't blame Ainsco for losing him that game. No, so I when I heard him do that, it was... the kick was always going to be a try. The only thing that could have gone wrong was if Smith dropped it. But uh, yeah. Ainsco, he's got the decision to make. Either he, he impedes yeah. or he lets him score. So Yeah. And, uh, as I said, mate, I, I reiterate, we trained for that. We knew it was going to happen. And there's no variables in it. Put a good kick in, jump up over the top of Ainsco, catch it and score. Yeah. So yeah. we did that. I was on the field. And then, um, yeah, I think I'd replaced Lazarus the last couple of minutes and Lazarus had gone off and I was lucky. I was on there. I was on there for that kick and I was on there for that celebration at the end. Yeah. Um, what I call that genuine emotion, you know, the, the picture of Lazarus in the background now and and I think that's Howie over there on the on his, near his right arm and yeah. I don't know who's at the trophy. Denny, Denny Williams, number 15 there. Nick look at that. And um, that emotion, and this, you know, like, yeah, I've won grand finals with other clubs too and local local football in the bush and it's the same emotion whether you win under 10s grand final or NRL grand final. You can't get any better than being the best at your particular sport. So um, one funny thing, my dad was there, uh, as I said, and he went for a he went for a piss halfway through the game and about about the 54th or 58th minute. Yeah. Coincides oh, no. with coincides as we spoke earlier when I scored that try. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and he was in the toilet. And um, everybody started going, Roddy, Sky, Roddy. And my dad's going, what's going on? I'm his dad. I'm just having a piss. <laughs> and he just said, he just scored a try. And he wow. obviously missed it. And he said, people in the dress, in the toilet hugged him and they were lifting him up and down like <laughs> in the, in the dunny. So he never even seen it. He probably had to watch a replay. But wow. he's, um, he missed the try. So that was funny. Yeah. Um- yeah, you just mentioned Bill Harry, and like that brings back a lot of memories. I still remember, like, I loved him as a ref. I thought he was a good ref, but he just had this swagger about him. You yeah. look at a lot of the refs these days; they look a little bit like nerds, and and yeah. but he was just this kind of cool kind of character. So yeah, yeah I thought he was a fantastic referee. Uh, Come across I, I, like that. Yeah, there's, there's a referee years ago called Greg Hartley, and he used to strut oh, around. Yes, yes. You know, seventies. Yeah. He strut around and do it, and the referees these days are, are very similar. But Billy, as you know, was in the police force very high up, so he respected yeah. the criminals he worked with, and he demanded that. And he, I suppose, he's been treated us like criminals. I'm the boss. <laughs> you listen to me, or you're getting off. And um, yeah. we knew that, so he was good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we want to quickly ask you about the celebrations for the premiership. Obviously, this year, um, don't know if you've been following a lot of the players with social media. Their celebrations have been sort of up in the internet. Uh, who, who the question is who is the best on ground for the post uh, premiership celebrations in your opinion was it yourself well, would you, would mate, you I never missed out there? on those things mate I never missed out on the celebration you know we went hard yeah. for a week or so 
Um, but, you know, we all kept together. We had a party uh, after the grand final. We flew back on the aeroplane. They, they chartered an aeroplane for us. Yeah. We flew back with our... It was only, every time I've only got to sit down in first class on the way back or business was on the way back. We sat in the front and yeah. that was phenomenal. And just to be on the bus. And then the best part about the whole thing, other than winning, was coming through Melbourne Airport. Um, I remember coming off the aeroplane and there was, it seemed like thousands of people. It seemed like thousands. It might have been hundreds. Yeah. at the terminal, inside the terminal as we come off the aeroplane. And I've got goosebumps thinking about it now. And we walked off and I was behind Lazarus and he probably had the trophy. And that feeling of walking all the way through the terminal, out, get your bags, and then go out to the team bus and they were pushing on the bus and cheering us. And I remember sitting on that bus and I was half pissed by then and looking out the window and just seeing, seeing there was hundreds of people there. And I was sitting beside my wife, Sonia, and she's holding me hand. And I, was, and I remember Marcus sitting behind me and, he was saying some stuff and he's to this day, he still doesn't speak the clearest English I've ever heard in my life. And yeah. I've just seen his big white eyes and his white teeth and he didn't stop smiling. He's sitting just behind me. And yeah. that's what I remember of that bus trip, just how his, his smile was yeah. captivating. And he was, it was beautiful sitting next to Marcus who'd come from, you know, the highlands of New Guinea. Um, and, you know, I come from Liverpool in Sydney basically. And um, we just, I just remember that. And then we got back to the ground and had a party on the Gosh's paddock and, so yeah. then we went in and then we just continued on from there, just having bits and pieces for the week. And, and the photos we've got with the trophies and the, the NRL trophy, with some, we've all got cigars in our mouth, which seems to be the way to go. And yeah. <laughs> pictures with Molly Meldrum and, and it was yeah. great. And it was great. And, and we partied like that anyway, usually during the year. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some of us did. Some of us did. We partied a couple of days a week through the year. And yeah, we had some fun. Yeah. Sounds good. So moving on to, to 2000 season. So the one thing I wanted to basically just talk about that season is the death of Michael Moore. Now, as a kid at the time, you hear, I think it was general manager or some manager. Yeah, football some manager, sort, manager of players. Manager. I thought, oh, didn't really think too much of it. But after reading a book about, um, it's called Storm Cloud. I've got it here, actually. Oh, you can't okay. It. But um, the top, sorry, uh, Paul Kennedy. That? It's about Paul Kennedy. It's about um, it's 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 about mainly about the salary cap scandal, but it paints the whole picture back from '98 all the way through. You you your your name's in it actually as well. Um, there's a little bit about um, you, but anyway, he talks about Michael Moore's death and just the impact it had on the team. So yeah, describe like how that actually affected the team being being you know around the team and there at the time yeah so mick was the person who met you at the airport when you flew into melbourne you knew nobody mick picked up the airport so you seen his big face and he sounded like a cowboy from the bush in green he's like g'day boys here you go my name's mick what are you up to come on let's go for a ride jump in woo and that's how he was that was how every minute of his life lived yeah and um you know he was very successful building the club up mick was the man he had a, a notepad about that thick and he'd yeah. open it up and write it in it, and then next page and next page, and half the stuff got done and half didn't. You could always fix it with a credit card. Oh, shit, I forgot to book hotels. Okay, we need 25 guys in a hotel room for the night, boom. And it was just, that's how the storm was started. The credit yeah. cards and just Chris Johns and John Rebo, they were there, and they'd never owned a club or run a club before. They'd been involved, but the pressure. So Mick was just a do-it man. Ring it, fix it. Start of 2000, I was out with a groin injury. I'd had some surgery after the grand final. So I missed the trip to New Zealand. Woke up about seven o'clock in the morning. Had a, I heard the news. I said, hey, uh, there's been a sporting official. And a, a player from a sporting team has died in New Zealand. 
didn't mean much to me. I heard it on the Channel 7 News or whatever. And then I heard, then I heard um, um, a player involved in a Melbourne Storm player or officials being killed. I'm like, fucking hell. So I start getting the phone and I ring Mick. Ring, ring, yeah. ring, 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 ring. I would have rang him 20 times. And then I heard the last new bit of news I heard was um, a sporting official has been killed. So there's only four there, I think. Rebo, Johns, Mick Moore, sorry, Greg Brennan or Chris Anderson. One out of five. I'm still ringing Mick. What's happened to Chris Anderson, Rebo, Johns? What's happened to them? I didn't in my head think it could be Mick. Then I got a phone call a little bit later and they told us Mick had, Mick had passed away. And and uh, Mick, Mick sits here at my um, – sits at my table. That's a photo yeah. you can see. That, that was after the grand final. There's not very many times you're going to see VB stubbies on Australian Stadium. Yeah. He come onto the field and he says, Right, yeah. That's how he used to speak. And he gave me a stubby of VB. And someone said, You can't drink them off. He says, Who's going to fucking stop us? Yeah. We drank VB stubbies on Stadium Australia. Normally you have Gatorade or if you're going to have beer, you have cans. But we had glass bottles in the middle of that. And <laughs> that was what Mick was going to do. Yeah. Um, and then obviously his funeral's in Queensland. Um, a week later or like that. But, um, you know, he'd, he'd had an accident over there where he, he jumped in the, in the afternoon, as far as I'm aware, and I don't want to speak out of school. Um, you know, in the afternoon, they were mucking around on the on the wharf, and I don't want to talk too much out of school. Then he went back at night time and think that the, the, the tide had changed a little bit and the, and the dark clouds and, you know, I'm, I don't want to elaborate too much, but he had an accident yep. and then passed away over there and it, it broke our hearts broke our hearts. He was the heart and soul, you know. He was he was the, the Kamali of the team. He was the management, the part of the management yeah. team. You'd ring him for anything, anytime, 24-7. And, yeah, you never forget that fella. And, and this year we had a 20-year reunion from when he passed away. And I I got that photo there, screen-footed onto a T-shirt. And I walked into the club and we had a memorial for him this year. And we were going to fly to New Zealand in April um, for the Warriors game. And we're going to have a, a storm reunion over there for that game. So we missed wow. out on that this, this year. So we had his funeral up in Queensland. Um, we were playing a couple of days later. It was midweek, Tuesday, Wednesday. We were playing on Friday against Newcastle. And I said to the coach, he said, can we have a drink? And the coach said, just do whatever you want to do. So I know half of us got blind drunk and football was the last thing on our thing. And we had his, had his wake. We, we drank, drunk as much as we could and flew down at Newcastle and got flogged. It, was, it wasn't a... It wasn't a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a fairy tale. We were hung over. We didn't care about footy that day. So yeah. But you know, he lives on through his beautiful partner Tracy. Yeah. His beautiful kids. You know, they've grown up and we're friends with them as well. And that's that's, that's an great. accident and that's life. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really great that the club still remembers him and, and yeah. commemorates him. I think you know, it, again, reading the book, the book uh, sort of described him as that key middleman between the players and the management. Um, he was the one who could keep the peace and and really, you know, keep everyone happy. So, yeah. Yeah. The nail on the head there, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, moving on to 2001. Um, we're, we're doing all the... Actually, I just turned the light on. The light's starting to... Uh, it's just starting to fade into the background, pole man. Into the background. That that, does that help me a bit? A little bit better. Yeah. Might have you have, you yeah. might have to turn the green screen off if... Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, 2001. So, um, yeah, that was the year Chris Anderson. Um, uh, he, he walked away, if, if I 
if I uh, if my sources are correct. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about that. Um, obviously, he he's the one who helped you get down to Melbourne. Um, again, based off this book, it talked about, uh, I think he was pretty upset that the club couldn't re-sign Kamali and also the stuff that went down with his son, as you talked about earlier. Um, yeah. What are your memories of uh, Chris Anderson's departure? Yeah, he was, he was the, the other one. He, he's an old-fashioned coach. Um, yeah. You know, the old-fashioned train hard, stick together, you know, one in all in for a punch-up, that old-fashioned old stuff. And that worked for us down there. We yeah. didn't need to, you don't need to be a rocket scientist. You know, get the ball, run hard. Could tackle, yeah. play the ball, pass it to your mate, and go through. And, and Chris would get in there, and you know when he got serious, he'd, he'd have a yell at us. But he loved a lot of golf, and he brought the players together. And we used to go and play golf sometimes four days a week. You know, you finish training, go that'll do, boys. Me and Rorts have got to get on the golf course in forty-two minutes. Right, have a shower. Yeah, and that's how he was. That's how he was the whole three and a half years or three years whenever he went there, and. Um, very sad to see him go. Chris is still a family friend to my, me, myself. Um, yep. The few times over the last few years I've been up in Cronulla and I might have not been able to get a taxi or not. I've lost my wallet or my phone and can't get home anywhere. No, no hotel booked. I'll go yep. knock on the Anderson house at the beach at Cronulla there and his wife will come in at two in the morning. Oh, Rods, hello. Go and jump on the couch. And that's... Yep. You know, <laughs> not many people... <laughs> I haven't changed one bit in 20 years either. But he... That, not many people have that relationship with a coach after yeah. he left the club 20 years later. It's just, we, I love the guy. I love his wife. I love these kids. And, and for him to go was, you know, demoralising for the, the club. And then Mark Murray took over. Yeah. Um, and once again, I won't talk too much out of school, but a lot of the players didn't like Mark Murray. He yeah. was like, um, he treat the kids like, a, excuse me, he treat the players like kids, um, ex-school teacher. And he'd stand up there and he'd go, you know, someone would you'd be talking and someone would go, excuse me, who's talking up the back? Like that's what a school teacher would say where Chris Anderson goes, hey, shut up, dickhead, or piss off. Where Mark would excuse me, I'll, I'll have to talk to you after training if you're up the back talking. And we'd be like, we're 25, 28, 30 years of age and someone talking to us like school kids. And we'd be like, don't talk to us like school kids. Yeah. We're men. You talk to men like men. And he lost that respect for the players in, in that you know, that, that regard. And um, some of the players, you know, said he didn't teach us that much and we didn't evolve much as a club. So yeah. um, he did teach me how to dry me, dry in between my toes with a sock. That's what I tell people yeah. after a shower. That's about all I learned. Yeah. <laughs> Get your sock and put it in between your toes to dry it. That's about all he taught me. So the boys actually, I'm glad you mentioned showers. I was meant to bring this up a bit earlier. So this oh, is, this is, uh, yeah, here we go. So this was, I found this, um, this is a Russell ba uh, Bowden quote about, well, I won't, I won't say it. I'll let you tell us what it is. It's, it's Rusty Bowden was talking about an initiation you had for the uh, new players coming in. Uh, he can talk about that one. He can talk about yeah. that. I've seen over the years in rugby league, I've seen people who don't do certain things have their shoes urinated on. And this is, I played for about five clubs, so I can't say where it happened. Yeah. You jump in a shower and someone would fill up your shoe with some urine or something around the clubs yes. or someone would... Yeah. Someone would pee on somebody's leg. Um, I don't want to go too X-rated and go go viral, but the whole lot of clubs I played in around the world, this would happen sometimes to some of the younger players. Yeah. The one thing I can tell you, Russ and I used to do in the shower, and it's probably a bit off topic, what he said, was we would wait for the coach to finish talking, whether we won or lost, and we'd be sitting there like, we tried our best, and we weren't going home to cry. We, we played our best. 
and we won't want to sit there and, and cry into our boots. We're like, as soon as the coach finished, we grab a six-pack of beer, two chairs, and we go into the shower and we'd sit with the water coming down the back of our heads and we'd sit there until we drank six beers, three beers each. And a lot of times, the Melbourne Storm um, number one sponsor, number one um, fan, Molly Meldrum, happened yeah. to come in. And Molly had sit there or just sat there chatting to us while we're sitting there stark naked under the shower for half an hour drinking beers. And Molly would be having the time of his life just chatting away to Rusty and Rorts <laughs> in the shower. Well, it's yeah. a little bit different than Russell's story, but, you know, we were famous for that. We'd be stood soon as soon as the game had finished, you know, close off and run in the shower and start drinking <laughs> our VB stubbies in the shower, win, lose yeah. or draw. And, and, you know, we had fun winning and we had fun losing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah, well, it's pretty much it's just along the lines of what uh, Rusty said there. Yeah. Um, anyway, you so you left the club at the end of two thousand and one. You went to Penrith. Um, as I said, it was mentioned in the book. Um, I think it was a John Rebo quote. I won't I won't bring out the book and quote it, but he he talked a bit about they were trying to they were having salary cap issues and they wanted to keep you, but they couldn't quite fit you in the cap. Um, is that sort of how the story went down? Pretty close. What happened? Um, they, I think they just cut my contract with 20 or 30 grand, but I was still there. And they offered me a three-year contract. Um, yeah. John Rebo and, and um, Mark Murray offered me a three-year contract up there. Um, but Penrith would give me a, a, a bit extra upgrade, probably another 70 grand, yeah. 60 or 70 grand for two-year contract. And yeah. I was like, I'm a businessman as well. Rugby league's a fickle sport. You have one bad year or six months, you're going to get pissed off anyway. Um, I didn't like Mark Murray as a coach. Yeah. Um, Roy Simmons was coaching up in Penrith. Um, so I'd signed up there, got a good contract for two years and left. Very sad to leave Melbourne. I love the place. I've come back and I'm still living there. I love I love the boys. I love the culture. Didn't like Mark Murray. Couldn't see me. They, As I said, they offered me a three-year contract. Could have been a seven-year player and then after that, another two or three and a 10-year player. Who knows? Yeah. But I just took the contract, went up to Penrith. Roy Simmons actually got sacked before I got there and John Lang took over as coach. Yeah. So yeah. I moved up there and... Yeah, so I was going to say, you left Penrith halfway through the 2003 season. Do you sometimes think uh, what could have been if you stayed on? As obviously, as we know, they won that yeah. championship. But um... We'll just touch on Penrith a little bit. I went up there and they had a, a weights program and I got massive. I got to 105 kilos. Um, yeah. And Penrith never ran in the off-season much. And coming from someone who'd been flogged in Melbourne, I'm like, we're not running and we're just doing weights. We're all turning into monsters. Fast yeah. forward the next year, 2003, they're in the same training regime. And who won the premiership? Penrith. You know, yeah. halfway through the season, my contract was due to expire. Some up and young, up and coming young players were getting some good money, and, and they deserved an upgrade in their pay. I was reading a big league magazine. Um, I rang up my manager on the way to a game versus the Cowboys, and I said, "Ring these guys in England. They're looking for a second rower in Huddersfield." Straightforward. He rang them up once again, the same as when I left um, when I started left Sydney for the pro. Pen, um, Huddersfield at Giants over there said, "Oh, we need you here, but you've got to be here next." next Tuesday to, uh, to take up a two-and-a-half-year contract. So I walked into John Lang, seen him, and um, uh, Richardson, whatever his name, Shane Richardson, yep. and I said, mate, I need a release. I've just signed a good contract in England for two-and-a-half years pending a release. And they said, we don't want to see you to go. We're coming second or third on the ladder. There's a premiership here. And I said, well, I'm a businessman. It's a business decision, you know, rugby league, and it's this and that. Went to, went to England, flew back for the Bucks. My Bucks party had 60 guys at Nelson Bay in Sydney, the night yeah. of the grand final, and I sat in front of the TV at a local pub there. And when we when they won, we won. I cried my eyes out in front of the pub. So oh, nice happiness and sadness. And but, um, um, still, yeah. 
I was just going to say, who are you supporting? Um, there's only one answer here. Uh, two weeks ago in the grand final. <laughs> yeah, I was supporting. Of course, I was supporting the Storm. I know the boys. Yeah. I know the players. Penrith, Penrith are great to me. I've never had feelings against Penrith, but they gave me my, they gave me my, um, my start down here, and, and they keep me together as as a Melbourne old boys. We're such a tight team. Once you leave the Storm as a player, you become a Melbourne old boy, and you stick together like brothers forever. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's awesome to hear. Um. <laughs> Running a bit short of time, I want to talk a little bit about your post-career uh, stuff. Um, just yeah. maybe give us a little bit about uh, England. You played for Huddersfield for, I think, three years, one year for Castleford. Um, yeah, I won't, I won't waffle on too much there. I went over yeah. there, as any man does, to just travel the world. Got over there, played a little bit of good football. Um, it just shows the level of football wasn't as good as Australia. I was a starting player there. I got best and fairest in my second year. They made me captain of Huddersfield in my third year which was yep. amazing. I was the proudest man on the earth. And then I had a typical neck injury, like a lot of the rugby league players do, and I had a fusion put in my neck, the metal yep. plate put in my neck and four screws, which to this day has is, is caused me nightmare. I had 13 quarter zones in it last year, and my neck's, yep. my neck's um, not very good. But England was great. Huddersfield was great. Um, played for Castle for, for a year. Uh, one of those players who played just too long. I should have retired the year before. I wasn't interested, but I couldn't get a job back in Australia. Yep. So I took another another contract for a year, extra year over there, played a little bit long. But that, that trip to England was just all about going to Europe and, and travelling the world. Yeah. A little bit of football at the Fair time. Enough. Had a great did you, time. Did you visit Poland? No. Are you from oh, Poland? Yeah, I'm Polish, so. Dzień <laughs> dobry. Oh, Ah, oh, great. That was a good pronunciation. Yeah. 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 So, so, so. So, oh, what? I, I, yes, I, I, yes. I can do the, yeah. the book of bitches. And Excellent. Few of the yeah. Reading. That's yeah. really good. Swear words here and there, but uh, yeah. I can't say uh, I've got the full language. But, my next door neighbor's in Sydney. We're Polish. So, yeah. We're oh, nice. Catch, catch and smoke eels so they can smoke the eels. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, they love the smoke stuff in Poland. Yeah, um, you press on there, Paul. I'm, I'm just interested. So it sounds like because you were still fairly relatively a young man when you hung up the boots. I think you wouldn't have been far past 30. Uh, yeah. But it doesn't sound like you have any regrets, maybe. Uh, no, nah, mate, I, I was 30 and I was bored. It's just I was bored of rugby league. I just burnt out. Just bored. I, you know, I didn't want to play anymore. I, I was laying in bed. I was 30 years of age. I just hurt my neck and I just lost interest. I was laying about 10 kilo overweight. And Tony Smith rang me from Leeds Rhinos, who were the world champions at the time. And I was laying in bed, 10 kilo overweight. And he rang me one Sunday morning before I flew home. He goes, Benny, do you want to sign up for Leeds Rhinos? I said, you won the World Club Challenge. You're the best club in the world. You want me? He goes, I want your type of character around the club to build, rebuild, you know, the, the character around the club. And I was like, he offered me some phenomenal money. On a on a week to week basis, you know, what about the biggest contract I ever got? And I was like, give me a month to think about it. And then anyway, Carson had come in with another offer, and I signed with those. But I wasn't interested. I wasn't interested. I just got burnt out from rugby league, and you know, people want to play on forever. I'd, I'd done. I'd achieved all my goals in life. I just want to play first grade. I yeah. got a premiership. I wanted to go to England and just travel to there. I'd done it all. I'd done it all. I wasn't. I never had aspirations to play State of Origin or Australia, and no, it probably wasn't good enough. But I never even thought about it. I, was, I just enjoyed yeah. myself and had a, had a drink two days a week for probably ten years, and you know, <laughs> can't yeah. do it now. But that's that's all I wanted to do in life, and happily married, kids, and come home to Australia and get yeah. a few acres and a few animals, and that's what I've done. <laughs> That's, That's fantastic. A, that's a good segue, Michael, into Ben Rorty, the man. You've done a bit of uh, looking into some of the things Benny's involved with. Yeah, so, yeah. You, you can probably tee him up to tell us about what he's doing. Yeah, yeah so you, you retired in 06, came back to Victoria, and I'm assuming that's 
because of your wife. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Sydney didn't have much going for me. Parents moved down the south coast. So I had no one in Sydney, brothers yep. and family. But yeah, yeah, only here for the wife and the love, Victoria. So. Yeah, fantastic. Now, so I think uh, again, my research showed me that um, you were a youth worker as one of your sort of first. Are you a PT? Are you still a PT at the moment? Yeah, I still do a little bit of PT. I started on yeah. the gym. I've opened a couple of gyms down here and moved them on and stuff like that. And one particular yeah. time, a group come in and. Next minute, I'm a youth worker. I did that for 12 months working with you know, young, disadvantaged teenagers. Yeah. Um, and what a fantastic job and humbling background and, and meeting these kids in their background. It was, it was tough for them and to give them an opportunity. And it was a great a great year or so that I did that. And, and that was a big part of my job. And a lot, I don't mind changing jobs all the time. So, you know, for these people who want one job for 20 years, I think you should have 20 jobs and last one year in each job. So... Yeah, I just, yeah. I just move on and, and loved it and keep moving on and experiencing stuff. And you're probably going to get into the prison service after that. That's where I went. Yeah, that. yeah, that was my next question. Yeah, you started working as a, a prison a, a corrections officer, I think yep. is the official term. Yeah, so yep. tell us a bit about that and um, and and um, I guess what that um, experience was like. Yeah, moving into the accident I had at the end, yeah. So yeah. I went in, I started as a prison officer, loved the job. I had a good rapport with the prisoners. You know, you're talking the worst of the worst and the biggest and baddest prisons in Victoria. And I'd just give them, I was like rugby league, black and white. Just, yeah. just respect me, I respect you. That's all you need. After three months, I was lucky enough, I moved into the riot squad. Um, we are dealing yeah. with, you know, I've seen... Half the stuff I can't mention, I'm looking at writing a book at the moment on it, you know, I've seen some yeah. stuff that, you know, you can't print on TV and you shouldn't talk about, like people on fire and they've been passed away through accidents and, and, and stuff that goes on in prison. And, you know, I dealt with a lot of, you know, the pedophiles and the rapists and Adrian Bailey and, you know, yeah. all these people, Tony Mockbell and all those people that, you know, the worst of the worst in Victoria prisons. And I used to deal with them on a daily basis. So I've seen and done a lot there and, I was respected in my job, um, and then I then I um, I was, drink driving. I got caught drink driving, so I lost my license for a couple of years. Thank God, while I did drink driving, I didn't hurt anybody. Um, I just got it randomly stopped on the side of the road, and that was a good that was a positive change in my life because previously I was a drink driver. Um, I just no excuses. I'm ashamed about it back then and, and now the fact I got caught, lost my license for a couple of years and moved on and I haven't done it since and I'll never do it again. But I lost my job in the prison service in the right squad for that and that was my passion, um, dealing yeah. with those. I moved into the women's prison for a couple of years in the mental health unit and the gym and that wasn't my calling. Then I moved to become a correctionals, uh, community corrections officer and that, that yeah, that's where I had a bit of an accident down there if we're going to ask about that one. So. Yeah, yeah you, you can yeah elaborate on that if you if yeah. you like. Um. That one there, once again, I won't go too long a story, but um, I was supervising eight, eight criminals out on, on release, mowing some grass on Footscray Oval, and a truck drove past and uh, exploded. And there was, there was wow. foot, um, debris 50 metres in the air and 200 metres down the road. And the criminals I had with were mowing the grass at the time and I wasn't near them. And I thought they'd put a, a, the petrol together from the lawnmowers and created a bomb and blown something up. So I thought it was a terrorist attack. Um, and a big truck door landed near me and all the windows within 50 metres around me exploded. The, 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 the repercussions from the explosion blew all these windows out. You know, like a bomb would go off in a war. And I dived on the ground and stood up and I was half deaf and then the criminals come towards me and I'm starting punching on with them thinking they were doing that. There was eight of them and I would have eaten them all alive. That's how angry I was. Yeah. And then it was evident as I looked around, a truck driver had died. He had his head blown off. 
um, and a, another car was being smashed into, and the driver got out and collapsed. And the, the sound of the ringing car, you know, the horn gets stuck on, still yeah. stuck in my head today. And I, I evacuated the prisoners out of there. And what had happened, it's on the news, it's on the media. A uh, removalist truck was driving past Footscray Oval, and um, the gas bottles in the back were turned on. And he lit up a cigarette and it blew his wow. head off and just changed. Yeah. So that, that gave me the PTSD today, which yeah. is, you know, hypervigilant and the nightmares and the, 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 the loud noises and stuff like that. I'm fine. I'm fine now. And I, I t- typically say I haven't got PTSD, but then you talk to doctors and they sort of, they want you to still have it. Oh, you've still got it. You've got PTSD for life. But the way I've been thinking, you know, more recent times is I haven't got it anymore. I had it. I don't need to be labelled with something, you know. You can have a sickness or an illness at at a point, but you don't have to have it forever. So, you know, I left that job and and uh, never went back. But I would have loved to gone back as a a riot squad officer, but that just that was about it. Yeah, I'm fine with that now, and I'd like to talk to people and help people with PTSD and stuff. Yeah, (laughs) I'm just going to jump in there. Sorry, Michael Benny. I think it's uh, beautiful you shared that with us, Ben. That's fantastic, mate. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It's obviously something that's got an enormous, had an enormous impact on your life. And I can only imagine what kind of horror that would have been. And just for anyone who's listening or watching, if you are experiencing any issues with your mental health, uh, there is support out there. Contact Lifeline 13 11 14. There's always support and help available for you there. You've heard Ben share that story. Uh, Yeah, well said. He's had had those experiences and, and, you know, he's obviously found the help and support and would like to pass that on to others. Yeah. I saw a um, psychologist, psychiatrist, had some medication for the time to clear me, clear me mind and help me get through that time. Great family support, uh, friends and family. And, I, and talking about it worked for me. Talking about yeah. it worked for me. You know, I'll never forget what happened. As soon as I hear a loud noise or someone walk up behind me, I'll still turn around or I'll get goosebumps on my arms. It's still yeah. affected by it, but I don't, I might have a couple of symptoms, but I don't think it's that bad. So yeah. thank you. Well said. Yeah, no, very well said, Dubs. Um, and sort of, yeah, so moving on to something that's a bit more positive. Um, you, as your T-shirts, they uh, Camp for Cancer. So it, it's a charity that you started. Um, you raise a lot of funds for cancer research, if I am correct. Uh, I think Peter Max, one of the main, uh, I yes. guess, the recipients of, of the money you raise. Yes. yes. Tell us a bit about that. How, how did that start? Um, what events do you do? How do you, how do you raise the funds? So, yeah. Hey, so um, my parents had both passed away from cancer, you know, probably 10, 10 or so years ago. Um, and then I went to an event down at um, the showgrounds on Anzac Day where you camped in swags to raise money for the RSL. And it was the most poorly run event I'd ever seen in my life. So I was driving yeah. home the next day and said, I'll run an event in this park near my house and raise money for charity. And uh, yeah. that came about and I rang a couple of trusted friends of mine um, and the first year in 2015, all we did was have people camping in the in, the, in a private property, a couple of bands playing. We raised eight and a half thousand dollars. Second year, 2016, we moved up to eighteen and a half thousand. And then fast forward last year and the year before, sixty thousand dollars. And all we do is camp and listen to live music, have some raffles, auctions, and yeah. we raise a lot of money. And, and I've been lucky. People from around Australia are ringing me to have events like this down in Geelong, up in Mathura, Queensland, and all over the area. People are ringing me, how are we going to do this again? And um, Camp for Cancer is becoming a, a pretty big name. And for those people interested, it's quite simple. Go to the campforcancer.org.au, camp for cancer with a four, .org.au, and, and keep up to date with us. And the timing of our uh, event, our chat tonight, is, is, is perfect as 
this weekend, this Saturday, we've got our Camp for Cancer live event on this year. As this shirt says, it's, it's, it's live, so we can't come together and congregate. But we've got um, eight beautiful artists coming together, including Dave Gleeson from the Screaming Jets and the Angels. Yeah, and nice. he's headlining for us a live event we're putting together this weekend. And we're going to um, we're going to rock and roll and still raise a little bit of money, but also raising awareness. You know, we're, I've been lucky enough to tour the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, where the foundation is, and um, visit patients, visit scientists, and the scientists. They've got something like you guys and my, myself in common. You know, you're passionate about this at the moment. You've got the passions for life. And these scientists who actually work at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, their passion, their passion is finding cures. Um, and, you know, they celebrate finding a little breakthrough like you see Lazo in the background now there, Dubs, right behind you. Yeah. This is how the scientists celebrate when they find a small breakthrough in their in their labs and, and i've been in there and i've witnessed it I'm, i've become friends with them and to play a small part in cancer research around australia is phenomenal um i, I don't particularly do much at the weekend on the event other than talk to all the campers and hear their stories because every person's got a story about cancer um and people have said to me recently said ben we wish people like you were around 20 years ago because I could give, I could reach out now, and I, I've got five friends who are in hospital with cancer, and I lost a dear friend two days ago to cancer, and I'm, it touches everybody. So my passion is um, to help raise money for cancer research and and help out. And in that, in saying that, I do have a young son who's got a little bit of autism and ADHD. He's seven. Um, so last year I stopped work full time, stopped work, and I'm his carer. So I'm home all day, every day, other than a little bit of personal training and. Um, He's got his own clothing label out. He drew this oh, nice. tie yep. and he's got a lizard on there. So he drew it and I sent away to the printers and he's got his own merchandise label as a seven-year-old kid. And um, awesome. so I've sort of moved into starting the train. I trained him and I trained two other kids with autism um, with fitness and, um, you know, balance and skills with their body, the coordination, because some yep. of the kids with the autism or cerebral palsy, they lose a little bit of balance and haven't got that much so along with the cancer research, I helped the autistic kids and um, just recently started a program last week with some homeless kids and stuff like that with a, a charity called One Voice, who they do the showers, the homeless people showers in the C CBD. Yep. So my life just all revolves around helping charities and helping people at the moment. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to come from a great parent background and be surrounded by great people all the way through. Um, I've had my ups and downs and, you know, rushing with the law and being a, being a rock star now and again and being a bit of a dickhead over the years. But you can always come back to your morals that your family and friends teach you and surround yourself with great people. And you've got no other option in life to help out, you know, and that's what yeah. we do. So that's been great chatting. Ben, I just yeah. want to say, mate, that, that's a, a beautiful story. And it, it kind of comes to this uh, perfect point that Ben Rorty, the rugby league player, gave us a lot of joy and a lot of fantastic memories. But I dare say that uh, the things you're doing now, maybe Ben Rorty, the man and the legacy you'll leave in, in the life that you lead is, uh, is is probably in many ways far more important than that. And there's something that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. For anyone who's listening, if you haven't been affected or touched by somebody uh, who's had cancer in your life, then you'd be in a very lucky minority. So get behind yeah. Camp for Cancer, and it's, it's we'll, a yeah, we'll look ahead in twenty years' time and, and say back and and you know, there's news yesterday: the cervical cancer is just about um, you know, if people are having the um, vaccines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, 
at the moment in 10, 20 years' time. You won't have any cervical cancer in Australia. So that's a big step forward. Wow. Um, certainly, we need some more stuff around the brain cancer um, and melanoma, like Mark Hughes Foundation, who we're doing a little bit of work with in, in Newcastle about the brain cancer. And that's that's a big one. In childhood, brain cancer is even bigger. So um, people say to me, do you, do you still hang around the footy, go to the footy? And I said, I do sometimes. I said, I talk at... I say it was just a job for me. Um, it was the best job in the world, um, but I don't harp on it too much. I still go to the games, but I take people to the games to let them experience it. Yeah. Um, I still have an interest in it. I know the players, I go to the reunions, I love it. But I say to people, that was just a job of mine for 10 years, rugby league. And now my job's now is create awareness about cancer research and help out with the autistic kids um, and moving forward. That's my you know, when I was passionate about rugby league for those nine years, not the 10th year or the 8th year, not the ninth year, that yeah. last year, I wasn't passionate that last year. And I'm passionate about, um, you know, making a difference in, 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 in the people's lives. And I can do that because I've got a big network of friends. And certainly chatting to you guys today has is, is been great. And, you know, we'll stay in touch and expand the network again. And, and I'm sure catch up one day and have a, a lemonade, a coffee or two beers. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we might have to join you. You know, we'll, uh, yeah. we'll get the showers running, get it water running down our back by the time. <laughs> yeah. Why rusty bad, mate? We'll go wherever you like. <laughs> we'll take him out, mate. We'll take him out. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been great chat. And I appreciate every moment of it. And um, a little thing on the cartwheels behind you about, you know, that Lazarus and Rodney Howe done one. And, you know, that, there's a famous picture. Everyone says Lazo doing the cartwheel, but it's actually Is Russell Howe right? and Lazo's no, in the background. It was Lazarus. But what we. Yeah, you, you find that picture, yeah. You see Lazarus in the background, you see this little, not this particular picture, but another one, the, the oh, guy upside down, yeah. it's actual Russell Bowden, Lazarus in yeah. the background. But what happened, St. Yeah. George have been kicking our ass. They kicked our ass in the first semi-final. They kicked our ass in the, they, they yeah. were kicking us our ass in the grand final. And we sort of said, I don't know if it was before the game or after the game, we sort of said, we win, we, let's do cartwheels. Because <laughs> we can't do backflips like Mundine and um, Blacklock. Yeah, yeah. So... That is why we did the cartwheels. It was to stick it up St. George. Uh, yeah. You can do your backflips and your front flips and your side flips. <laughs> we can do cartwheels. That's the story behind the cartwheels. That's I great. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Nathan Blacklock had the pretty uh, sweet dance moves after he scored. Oh. I reckon Lazo getting up on his hands was as good as anything I've seen. I remember great. watching that with my old man. We were just laughing and thinking that was fantastic. We were laughing. We were great laughing. Uh, it, um, was, it was a wonderful memory, mate. Yeah. And just on the cancer stuff, we'll put the link in the description of, you know, all the Apple podcasts and all that. So, yeah, Thank we'll you. try to spread the world as we can. Right. One little quick question before we actually sign off. Just, I, I, this is probably my, I don't know if it's going to come up. This is like my favourite. It's not coming up, is it? It's it probably my favourite bit of Storm merchandise. Well, I'll have to describe what it is. It's the CD of We Are The Storm from 1999. Have you There's got three, that? Yeah, I've got that. I bought it. I bought it. I think How? I when? Uh, back in 1999. I've been trying to buy a copy. I don't know where it is. We might have to copy it oh. one day. Oh, there you go. Um, no, well, yeah, I can definitely, yeah, we can definitely work something out. So there's yeah, three yeah. tracks. There's We Are The Storm theme, uh, We Are The Storm three-minute version, and then We Are The Storm with players on backing vocal featuring Aaron Wall, Matt Geyer, um, Danny Williams, and yourself. So the question is, how did they pick those four guys? Was there a singing contest or something like that? What a great question. What Storm a great Idol. way to finish. What a yeah. great way. Um, as you know, the promotions go around and there might be a promotion to go to a pub and do something, or a promotion to go here. Who wants to do this? You've got to do your, your fair share. And who wants to go and sing at Chapel Street on this thing? Yeah, we'll do it. Yeah. Right, let's go. We went there and we were singing. 
and the guy, and we, we had all microphones. There was two little microphone, and we, and it was, we are the storm, we are the room, and we're the storm, and we're number one. And you had to say number one, and and I kept going number one, nah. and then <laughs> and the guy's going, which one of yours is not singing right? And like I can't sing for shit, and yeah. I didn't know I was doing it wrong. And and then he's cutting the microphones out, and then he started doing it, and I was getting in trouble, and they were getting shitty with us because we weren't doing it right. Yeah. Anyway, they cut the song, and it's still the same song they use to this day after they win at the song. And if you yep. hear the um, the chorus in that song, they still use, 20 years later, use that yep. one of the storm backing singers. The funny thing is, I was at doing security at a wedding, um, would have been last year, late last year. I walked into this big house and this big guy standing there and someone said, oh, this guy over here, he's, he's into the storm. He's called Bobby Valentine. Can you see that name on there? Oh, yes, he wrote the song. Yep, he yep, wrote the that's song right. and he looked at yep. me and he says, I know you. And I said, where? He goes, I sung the Storm song. You were there. And I was like, what? Yeah. That was 20 years ago. And I was doing security at his son-in-law's wedding or something yeah. like that. And, and we yeah. had a laugh and sung a couple of tunes. And um, then I went to the try and get a copy of that stuff. Photo. Is there a photo on the back of us? Or on, there's not a photo. Yeah, there is. There is a photo of you. Um, That's the photo again. I wanted to see. You might have to screenshot it and send it to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I haven't yeah, seen yeah. that in 20 years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. What a yeah. what an amazing story and um, Bobby Valentine popped up and I met him again and stayed in touch with him and um, that's that's amazing what a great question to finish off with yep no worries all right you, well thanks a lot man. Ben yeah Dubs do you want to sign us off you're you're good with that I stuff. shall indeed it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure on the graveyard shift to be joined yep. by Ben Rorty Melbourne Storm Premiership star from 1999 an all round good bloke as well get behind the camp for council uh, graveyard shifters will be back again some point throughout the preseason otherwise enjoy your premiership success. And don't drink too much going into Christmas. Cheers, folks. Yep. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you very much. Thank you.